So today we're going to talk about George Kukurian. He was a lawyer, and that is what this is all about. This is Wildcat Dojo Conversations. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Wildcat Dojo Conversations. Say hi, Landon. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Go ahead. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Say it again because I interrupted. Welcome back. I'm Jackie. Okay. Today, I'm super psyched because we're having an interview mm-hmm. with Sensei Rudy. Say hi, Sensei. Hi, Sensei. And it's about his father. But before I give away even more than that, I'm going to go back and read a letter I got from Sensei Tracy about our book episode, 365 Days of the Warrior. And she writes, thank you for the nice comments during the book episode. I caught up last night. You all were right. Sensei did do the drawing on the cover of the book. He also did all the artwork and the design on the book of set. So for some of you who own that book, when you look at it, you can get a new perspective on that. Yes. One more thing she said was this. The 365-day book is definitely still available on Amazon for about $25. The problem is it's a pain in the neck to navigate. So she wrote in a grown-up way, it's just a pain to navigate. (laughs) I added in the neck. You have to click on other options. So when you search out the book, click other options and you'll be able to find some. And thank you, Sensei Tracy, for all that information. Us. And if you scroll back onto our Twitter feed, there'll be a screenshot of how to do it. Up oh, there. thanks. Who knew? Well, he did. Well, he knew. <laughs> in my brain, I knew. <laughs> okay. Now to introduce Sensei Rudy. Gosh, we have never not known each other. No, not at all, Sensei. We've <laughs> <It's laughs> known right. each other forever. And Sensei Rudy grew up in karate, and therefore, I grew up with him knowing both of his parents, and both of his parents are outstanding people. Since his father passed away, I should say were, but... Your mom's still there and kicking and making crazy, making you guys crazy, isn't she? She's just a different level of crazy, but yes, I'm <laughs> I, I love her. Me too. So today we're going to talk about George Kukurian. He was a lawyer, and that is what this is all about. So hi, Sensei. How you guys doing? We're good. Thanks for being on. How are you doing? Good, Sensei. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is a little bit exciting, but I say that every single episode. Well... But this one is so unique that it's very exciting. Okay, so this is really going to be where you lead me. And I'm going to start out by saying, I thought it would be interesting for you to tell as much of the story as you'd like to about your father's younger years, the part that led up to him joining the French Foreign Legion. Okay, Sensei. So when my father was growing up, the stories I got from him and from my family members was that he grew up in France during the German invasion or the German takeover during World War II. So between 1939 and 1945, uh, France was occupied by Germany. And everything they did was basically under the direction of dictatorship of the German soldiers, and they had curfews and stuff like that. My father at the time was between the ages of, uh, I got to do simple math, 8 to 13, 8 to 14, something around that real quick. So growing up in those war situations, he would there was no education for him whatsoever. He, I think he had a third grade education when he finished. And as a young kid of six that we knew about, um, he w- had to provide for the family. He was the second oldest. So working was wow. something that everybody had to do at a very young age. So my dad, like I said, was the second oldest person. He found different ways to make money. He always had stories for me. My grandmother used to tell me stories 
my my grandmother had six kids that we knew about and then according to her she had three taken away from her from the germans at the hospital so i've got wow. uncles and aunts i've never met that was the time of war so one of the things my grandmother always told me she said i had a funny feeling about your father i never wanted to have him and i did everything possible not to have him and it turned out that you know part of her reasoning was pretty right she he is a pretty stubborn man <laughs> nothing personal pot calling the kettle uh, you know, that, <laughs> we, and this it, is me, the pot calling you the kettle as well. So it's a, it's a it's whole funny, thing there. There's two different trees between you and my father, but it, I landed in the same exact spot. I don't know how that works. <laughs> um, so my father used to tell me stories about how they run away from, you know, the Nazi soldiers and the stupid things they used to do and how he made money and growing up like that. And I never had the chance to ask him why he went into the military. Not, not that I didn't want to know. I just never asked him and he never really said, hey, this is why I did it. But I think in my belief, that was part of the reason why uh, that. And he was just an entrepreneur. My father always said, I've never worked for anybody, even till the day he died. He said, uh, I've always wanted to get a job so I can get a paycheck one time in my life. <laughs> so I, I did know that about him, how he always worked for himself. And that is admirable to me. Mm. Yeah, making it on your own, basically your whole life and leaving one country for another and all that fun, exciting stuff. Yes, Make, You know, it creates character and it creates personality. So I told him before he died, I said, hey, if you want, I'll write you a check. I said, <laughs> <laughs> whatever you want, Pops. And he just looked at me and said, no, thank you. I said, all right. That's so, funny. Sissy um, Rudy, when he was growing up, did he speak French or did he speak Armenian? Did he speak both? So being in France, he spoke French fluently because that's where he's, I'm sorry, his grandparents left the genocide in Armenia. So our family, including his family at the time, all spoke Armenian fluently. So once they immigrated into France, they got there and they had to learn the language, obviously. So, And that was his parents. That was back in 1914, 13, 14, something like that. But my father was born in France, so he automatically learned both languages very easily. And then uh, when my father left France and went to Canada, that's where he learned Italian. And then when he started coming to the States, that's how he picked up English. So everything was self-taught. It's not like, again, there's no education. He was just like. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Multilingual and self-taught. Just really a self-made person. I just find that so admirable. Yes. Let's jump to the part where he did join the French Foreign Legion. How old was he? Uh, I think he was 17 when my grandfather signed off on it. I don't have an exact date. I know he was still a minor. I don't know exactly how old he was. Again, I know talk- he was still a minor because that's what he told me, but I, I couldn't, didn't know the exact date. I, I didn't either, but he was proud of that. Yeah. I, he told me also. Well, he told me, he's like, I had nothing else to do. He goes, I'm not going to school. And he goes, I just decided I'm going to join the military. I said, okay, I guess that's what you do. And he got in a, he got in a bus and from his hometown in Marseille to Paris was probably about a seven hour ride. He went, signed up, and every time, I think he did three times total. The first two times they sent him home, they called his parents to come get him. And finally, by the third time, his father signed off on him. So, so it said, took him three tries to get in. Now, I did not know that part. That's, that's cool. Interesting. Yeah, that is. Now, did yeah. he do all of his tours in Vietnam? Uh, he did in Vietnam, yes. He did uh, Hanoi. I thought he told me he did three, but I, couldn't re- I can't remember for sure. I think he did four. And so obviously you would know. Yeah, he's done four or six jumps in the combat. The last one being uh, Dien Bien Phu. That was the one where he got shot. 
And Dien Bien Phu is also one of the most famous battles of Vietnam. Would we, am I, do you guys think I'm right on that? It was I one of the. It was famous because when I was in school and we were talking about Vietnam, they brought up the Battle of Dien Bien Phu and how it was the transitional battle from France owning Vietnam to the states taking over. It was considered one of the bloodiest battles in the entire war. And that was when it was French. The Americans weren't in yet. I think the Americans went in in 67, if I remember correctly, my history. And this was in 52. It went from 52 to 54. So the Battle of Dien Bien Phu at the time, according to my father and some of the history books I've read, was a battle that wasn't backed by the French government. And it was one of those where they said, hey, good luck. We're not sending you any resources or aids. We're going to drop you in and you're going to do your job. The problem is that when they got dropped in, they were outnumbered something crazy like eight to one, 10 to one, and they were ambushed over the course of uh, four months, March, April, May, June, no, March, April, May, three months, over three, three plus months. So that's why how it became one of the bloodiest battles in French uh, military history and in the the history of Vietnam. Didn't it, um, didn't it have the least amount of survivors? Yes. I don't remember what the number of survivors were. I don't, I don't remember <laughs> if my father was here, he'd be mad because I used to get that. I used to get quizzed on this on a weekly basis. Uh, how many you people? Told they, me too. So I'm going to be embarrassed <laughs> that I don't have it in my head either. He would expect me to know where he jumped, how many people he fought, <laughs> how many people survived. When he, I'm like, pop. <laughs> and the up. picture of him. So in the middle of all this, um, at the rest of war or battle, what they would do is they collect ammo, artillery, uh, food, and they collect bodies. And what they would do is they put the bodies in a certain area and the bodies would get transported, however they did it back then, out of the fighting grounds back to home for proper burial. And at the time, there was a photographer there. I don't know who he is. And my father was carrying a dead body over his shoulder to the mass grave where they were going to get brought back home. And there was a picture taken. And from there, that picture snowballed into the same picture just being plastered all over the place. Some pseudo-famous Armenian slash French artist did a painting of the picture of my father and gave it to him as a gift back in the 60s, early 60s. Wow. And that painting's on my wall. It's been that place, that thing's been all over the place. That picture made Time Magazine. It's in a museum in France for the paratroopers. Uh, it's been in about a dozen different books. But all the pictures, none of them have like a caption of his name, which is even funnier because he's like, I don't really care. So Even though the French, when, they, when he got his French Foreign Legion Award, if I said that wrong, you'll fix me. They do know it's him in the picture. They recognized that it was him in the picture in that ceremony. Well, the medal, the French Legionnaire medal that he got was for having served. It wasn't necessarily for the picture. The picture had nothing to do with it. The way he got that medal is uh, my uncle, his younger brother, and the head of the museum in Po, France, got together and said, hey, why don't we nominate you for this uh, highest military medal that we can get? And um, after a bunch of different avenues and requests and all that stuff, he finally they called him and said, hey, you're coming up and we're awarding you this medal on such and such date. And it's it's the most prestigious medal of, that you can get through the French army, the French government. It's Napoleon's Legion of Honor. That's so way cool. But that's not his only medal. No, no. He's got a, uh, a couple purple hearts, a couple gold stars, a couple bronze stars, a couple silver stars, the Medal of Honor. And his claim to being very prideful, very proud of his accomplishments is he said, I did all that in two years of combat. Wow. So, 
after he would continue to lecture me about how great he was, and he would, uh, <laughs> he said, son, I got more medals in two years and people get over 20. And I said, okay, pops, I got nothing. I got no medals. I got nothing. You That's know? true. He did. But on the other hand, he had so many traits that are what people need to get by in this world. Yes. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. So what are your thoughts on how he managed to go from being in just brutal combat for those years into being in daily life as a civilian? I think that I was the last of his three children, but I think having talked to other people and obviously knowing him the way I knew him, um, my father had the characteristic of always wanting to be independent, never wanting to do things for himself and never going to fail. And I think the last part was, is he was never going to fail, no matter what. All that translated into civilian life. But with anybody who's been in war, and I have not been in war, I was not in the military. I'll make that disclaimer. I've been around people like that. Some form of PTSD will always stick with somebody, no matter if you did it in the 50s or if you did it in 2020. And I feel that the PTSD is something that people have dealt with, whether it was something back in the 40s or 50s or people are dealing with now in the 2020. It's just being approached differently now. My father, even having been out of war for 30, 40, 50 years, still had those traumatic memories. He just never expressed them like it's acceptable today. Back then, it was like, hey, buck up, move on. Life goes on. There's no no time to cry. One of the funnier stories about my father when he was, um, I was probably 14, 15, <laughs> I woke up to go to school. My mom and my dad woke up and my mom had like a bruise on her eye and my dad had a bruise on his eye. And I said, what the heck happened? And she goes, your father was having one of his nightmares and he punched me. So she goes, I turned around and punched him back. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Well, everything's good. So that's hilarious. And you know what, Sincerity, your mother played such a role in his PTSD, I'm sure, being the all-around psychiatrist, psychologist that someone might be able to go see today, but this was back in the day, there was no one that would listen to you. And thank God that today people can get help. Because, you know, one of the things that we really are advocates of here is ask an expert. Us. If you're if you're stuck somewhere, ask a freaking expert. It'll help you, right? Us. So we're all about that. That, but that was a different time, and the different time is a different time, isn't it? That is, it makes you who you are. It's going to mold you, just like Landon's generation is going to mold him into what he's going to become later on. And when Landon has kids, hopefully, his kids are going to be molded differently than he is. It's just exactly. the way the cookie crumbles. For sure. So exactly, I think your dad is a good example of taking the hand you're dealt and really building something substantial from it. Oh, right. yes. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And doing it his way. Yeah. I mean, he always did it his way. And then it's a good trait to have. And it's also a bad trait to have. I mean, it's, it can go either way with it, you know? So he's just, he went his whole life trying to make lemonade. That's <laughs> all people. He got, he's getting lemons and he's just trying to make lemonade. So. So what was it like being a kid of someone who spent those years in combat and then was raising a child. What was that like for you? So uh, having been the youngest of three children and having been uh, an afterthought, I was born a little bit later on. There's two things, and there's an obvious difference between myself and my two brothers and anybody who's been around them and us understand that. It's just the, the mental toughness you had to have in order to be around that man. 
The shoes were always too big. You were never going to fill them. And no matter what you did, it wasn't good enough. I could have been Mickey Mantle or Babe Ruth and there's, I still sucked. And no matter what, at the end of it all, and that's what in the book, The 365 Days of the Warrior, my father always told me he loved me and he's not doing it for to be malice, any malicious intent behind it. He's raising me. He said, he goes, I'm not your friend. I'm your father. We got an issue. We're going to deal with it like a business transaction. Like, you know, I was one of his soldiers, essentially. So it wasn't the easiest thing. That's for sure. And, you know, I took some good stuff and some bad stuff out of it. It's it molded me who I am today. Um, but it was not easy. It was not an easy uh, fill. Once you have that mentality of being a warrior and you're always trying to push forward no matter what, and you're trying to raise somebody or translate that to somebody else, it's not easy. I think you did an okay job. I turned out okay, kind of. I think so too. Sensei Rudy, having grown up like the child of a warrior and knowing that you yourself are a warrior, because I've known you since you were a child, how do you think it translates to your being a father? Oof, okay. That's, that's a tough question. Um, so <clears throat> like anything else, you pick and choose. Everybody goes through. So you pick and choose what you believe is good and what you believe is bad, for lack of a better term, from your upbringing. One of the unique situations that I have with my upbringing is that not only did I have to grow up in my father's footsteps with the warrior mentality, but I also had to grow up in my father's footstep being a migrant. My father wasn't an American. There was no American culture. So when we moved down here and he came to this country, essentially you're an outcast. You know, you're trying to have European culture or Armenian culture, whatever it is, and you're trying to influence that and commingle with the American society. And it made it that much harder for me because I'm like, hey, you know, I don't want to go to school with hummus for lunch. I want lunchables. So <laughs> what a good example. <laughs> you know. But it was very difficult for me to choose certain things. There was there were some parts of my childhood that I was not a fan of, especially during it, but at the end of it, I understood. And my father, funny enough, when I turned 18, was a completely different man towards me. The mm-hmm. day I turned 18, he sat me down and said, son, I've done everything I can for you. From here on out, you're on your own. I'll be here for you to support you. I thought he was kidding. It took me a, a week to figure out that he was not kidding. And at least like our friendship changed. And at that point, that's where I said, okay, now I get it. Because you grow up, you know, you're in your teens and stuff. You want to do the things you want to do and go play and go have fun. And you have your parents and your father. And he was that guy. He was like, you're not doing it. Ah, it's true. And you grow resentful of it. It's full circle. And then once you get to a point where you understand why you did it, and it's for your own good, your own safety, you're like, ah, crap. <laughs> so I take some of that stuff and I use it with my son and I see my, I see my father and my son, which is even weirder to me. It's so, so freaky because my son never met my father and God, they're so identical. <laughs> okay. I'm going to push this on here. Each one of us having the experience of had people who have passed away, we look back and we remember certain things that really stand out in our mind about that person. Give me one or two about George. Um, he just didn't care. Like he would just do whatever he wanted. It was just, it was amazing. It was amazing. The stuff he got away with. I saw him at a, at a younger age, you know, in his fifties, get away with stuff. And I saw him get away with stuff in his eighties. I'm like, dad, how, how did you do that? How did you pull this off? (laughs) 
you know, one of the things you always told me is like, if you don't want anybody to know a secret, you don't tell anybody anything. I was like, yeah, okay. That, that always That's stood out with me. And the one line that he told me since I was a kid and probably since I was still in diapers in French, it, it from French to English, it translates walk or die. And I said, okay. And it just means you get, if you don't move, if you don't keep pushing, mm-hmm. you're done. Yep. And, I and said, everybody okay. sitting here agrees with that. Yes. That's a good one. For sure. And I don't know if I'm going to put this on the air, Rudy, but you got me to thinking right. your mom rocks it. Oh yeah. I mean, she's an extraordinary person and she certainly should get a shout out for how strong she had to be to live. How long were your mom and dad married? Uh, married 30 years together, 40. Yeah. To be I with a, a, a man of that intensity for 40 years. Mm. I mean, she really needs a shout out. So holla, <laughs> Muriel. <laughs> and with that, oh my God, has this been fun. And we're going to finish it off with Sensei Rudy reading his passage out of the book, 365 Days of the Warrior. If you have the book in hardcover, it's on page 339, and you can also find it on November 29th. Okay, Sensei Rudy, you're up. Picture a man who's jumping out of an airplane with 300 of his closest friends beside him and 2,000 more below him in a jungle. As this man is floating down from the night sky, he sees bullets flying, bombs exploding, and friends dying. On these battlegrounds, there is no time for grieving the lives lost, because in doing so, you will lose yours. After countless hours of fighting and the hell, the noise stops and all is quiet. Now it is the time to collect up the dead and begin to to rest for the next battle. Rest here doesn't consist of you lying in a cozy bed holding a bear with your head on a pillow. Your pillow is your backpack with your life-saving supplies. Your bed is a jungle floor surrounded by insects, snakes, leeches, and your bear is your loaded rifle ready to fire at the slightest feeling of change. This is the life of a warrior. Fifty years later, the nightmares continue. Every day, he sees the face of the man that nearly took his life. The bullet hole in his left arm is a constant reminder of the paralyzation he had to endure for two years before finally defying the odds of ever being able to use that arm again. Now in the 21st century, after countless battles throughout life, this warrior faces a new challenge that not many can succeed at. This combatant who has taken the lives of thousands is faced with raising a child in today's society. A challenge that many believe is more trying than war itself. This is a father that will mentally try his son day in and day out, forcing him to a breaking point. This same father searches for fights to make his kids stronger. The only way he knows how to raise this child is by the way of the warrior, the same way he was brought up. The same man who never shows emotion or pain, but like all others, feels them both. This is the father that puts his child through more than any other, both physically and mentally. Most other children would grow to hate this man, but not the son of this warrior, because every night before this warrior goes to sleep, no matter what the events transpired that day, he always tells his son that he loves him. This is my father. Wow. I know it's heavy, right? But at the same time, it's light. Yes. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's got darkness and it's got light and that's life, folks. Yes. So, oh my gosh, it was everything I dreamed. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. That's first and foremost. I really appreciate it. And it was fun. It was very fun. It was very fun. And I did relearn things that I had forgotten over the years. So thank you for reminding me of that. So it's time for goodbyes. Bye, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. And I'm Sensei Michelle, signing off. Thanks for being here. Hope you join us again on Wildcat Dojo Conversations. Who are you going to call for all your karate needs? Honor Athletics, of course. 770-945-4444.
5150honorathletics.com. And hey guys, don't forget to use the code WILDCATDOJO as you're checking out for your 10% discount. As always, thanks, Honor Athletics. I second that emotion. I second it. <laughs>